The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted today to welcome my guest, Ms. Andrea Curtis. She is an award-winning writer and editor. She is the author of multiple best-selling books for adults and children. I'm going to focus on one in particular for children that is sitting on my desk right now. It's titled, Eat This, How Fast Food Marketing Gets You to Buy Junk and How to Fight Back. Welcome, Ms. Curtis. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, Melinda. Well, you've done some very interesting work. You've written a lot about women's health, neighborhood change. You have won multiple awards for your writing. You also have a program called Word Play, where you help children with creative writing for grade six students there in Toronto. And I love that you are bringing the world of creative writing and marketing and food systems and media literacy and food literacy to an audience that is truly in dire need for this kind of information. So let me just ask you, how did you come to the topic of food marketing and media literacy? What made you write this book? I think it probably started when I was doing my first children's book, which is called What's for Lunch? How School Children Eat Around the World. And in my research, the book travels the world looking at lunchboxes and trays and all the food that kids eat around the world for lunch. And as I researched it, I began to realize how much marketing played a role in even those school lunches. I was shocked, for instance, when I heard there were school cafeterias that had branded foods and restaurants within the school building. And so it just made me realize how pervasive it is. And uh, I have two kids of my own and started looking at it, at their experience as well, and realizing how much marketing they see in their daily lives. So I love this topic of media literacy and marketing and raising children's awareness. And I will tell our listeners that What's for Lunch? How School Children Eat Around the World is another terrific book. If we have time to touch on that, we will. But in my particular experience, I think your children are younger than mine. How old are your boys? They're now 19 and 14. So mine are in their 30s. And I remember when my son went to kindergarten, I remember seeing a Pepsi calendar in the kindergarten classroom. And I was shocked. I thought, what is Pepsi doing in the classroom? Yeah, and absolutely. I, I had a similar experience with my eldest when he was in kindergarten. The teacher wanted to do a project with the kids, they're four and five, to do a sort of pre-literacy project, tell them that words appear all the time in their everyday lives, and she asked them to identify symbols and words that they recognized, and they did posters that lined the the hallway of the school, and I would say 85 to 95% of the 
logos and words that they knew were fast food yeah. drinks. I was shocked. I thought, oh boy, this is really intense. If kids as young as four and even younger recognize these logos, they can sing the jingles, they know the spokes characters, this is ubiquitous and we need to really ask important questions about that. Well, I love the way you connect what is marketed to children and helping them raise awareness about the different techniques that are used. But you also connect it to how is this particular food product not only affecting your health, but also affecting the planet? Because what I find, and perhaps you do too, is that children are almost universally in love with nature. It's true. And I, I think that by helping them make the connection between how marketers want them to purchase foods that may not be in their best interest, but certainly not in the best interest of the planet, I think it might be a really good hook to help them say, hey, stop, I don't want to buy into this. Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing this with the straws campaign right now. It's it's something that, that people really see, you know, for better or for worse, this has become a, the talk in the last little while around getting straws out of restaurants. And it's a small thing, perhaps, but I think it's just sort of people see it. They, they understand that the, the waste involved. Right. They maybe can actually make a change in their daily lives. Right. Well, because I'm a dietitian, much of my work focused on preventing childhood obesity. And it was a problem 30 years ago when I was early in my practice. And it is still a problem growing globally because of this marketing of fast food. And I remember thinking at some point later in my career that we really weren't getting very far telling kids to eat more vegetables and get more exercise, that we really needed to focus on marketing. So your book is extremely important. Tell me, how are children responding to it? And what is the age range that you would like for children to be exposed to this information? The book is written at a level where it would hopefully appeal to kids about 9 to 12. Mm -hmm. I've seen um, teachers using it with older kids, using it sort of as a bouncing off point for bigger discussions, more complex, in-depth discussions. It's very visual, so my hope is that even younger kids will be engaged in it. I think you're right that the, the environment is a great way to get kids thinking about these issues. I also think, and this is how I wrote the book very much, is that I don't think kids want to be dupes. Yep. I think if you talk to them about the kinds of strategies and techniques that marketers are using and essentially fooling them into doing something that is not in their best interest, I think kids really respond to that. That's not fair. Right. <laughs> I had one teacher... And I'd love to tell you about uh, what she's done with the book in her class. But one of the things that she told me that the, the kids were shocked that profit drives these restaurants. It's such an obvious thing when, as an adult, we know that. But these kids were shocked that marketers and corporations would tell them something that was either not entirely true or was glossing over the truth and try to convince them to do something that was essentially unhealthy and not good for them or the world, they were surprised, which I find kind of astonishing, but also 
it's exciting because if kids can be given the tools and given the strategies and have those conversations, then maybe real change can happen. Yeah, I hope so. I think you're right. When you talk about that's not fair, that's such a typical statement that comes from a child's mouth. I think children, they're so vulnerable. They want fairness. And for them to see how they are being duped by people who simply want to make a profit off of them, I think that is a great way to get them interested in the whole topic of media marketing and media literacy. So do you want to go through some of the strategies that you expose in this book that kids might not be aware of? Yeah, sure. One of the things I think about when I talk about this is my book is trying to give some broad strokes guidelines about how marketing works with fast food and beverages. But it's definitely not the definitive word on this. Writing this book, I was constantly having to update. It took a number of years, as many books do. And I found I was having to call the publisher. We can't leave out Pokemon Go when a couple of summers ago, nobody was talking about anything else. So the strategies change all the time. This is one of the reasons marketing is so effective, because marketers are really smart and changes all the time. It's incredibly responsive. But I think in broad strokes, I look at about 10 different strategies that marketers use. And some of them are older ones that have new twists, and some of them are new. Would you like me to sort of run through those? Yeah, let's do ones? that. Okay, sure. Sure. So the first one is product placement. This is something that people are really familiar with. It's products appear in TV and movies, and the companies paid for them to show up. And it, it looks like the character, the actor, is just drinking a soda, but of course the soda company paid for it to have it there. And it's everywhere. One of the newer places that it turns up is video games. Mm. So NBA 2K, which is a game that my own kids played quite a bit for a while there, the basketball players can drink a Gatorade to get a boost on the sidelines. Mm. And Pokemon Go is another example. So a couple summers ago when it was big, it had a relationship with McDonald's and players could go into McDonald's and in Japan, actually, and they'd collect supplies or battle their Pokemon. The next one is another one that's really familiar, and it constantly gets reinvented, is celebrity endorsements and spokes characters. And of course, we know that when Beyonce promotes Pepsi, nobody's going to turn up their noses at it. Right. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's the evidence is there's a study that the journal Pediatrics published showing that 81% of the food endorsed by celebrities was energy-dense, nutrient-poor. Right. In other words, unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, the spokes characters. You know, we've seen this forever. Burger King, Tony the Tiger, the Leprechaun from Lucky Charms. And then there are all the characters that appear in movies and so on that are not actually fast food spokes characters, but they act as them. Right. They're licensed. And so, of course, just like those kids in my son's kindergarten class, the kids know these characters, and often, before they even know how to spell their own name, they recognize those characters. Yeah. And, of course, the, it works because the loyalty is built over time. And there's been research into adults that are even loyal to the brands that are associated with characters they knew as children. Mm -hmm. so it, it really is very effective. There was another 
study that I found really interesting in which researchers had kids try a product that they created, one with a character that they recognized, and the same food offered to the kids without the character. And you guessed it, they chose the one with the character. And they said that the food with the character even tasted better. Yeah. I mean, when we ask, why are you questioning marketing? It's because marketing works. It's very effective. It does. And you know what's so interesting is the industry, the marketing folks will say, well, parents are in control. Parents can say no. And the more I delved into this topic, the more I realized and you mentioned this in the book, is that it's such an uneven playing field. Even for those of us in public health, when we look at our budgets, they are pennies compared to what marketers have to promote the kinds of foods that all of us in public health say, well, eat less of that. Yeah. Well, and I've seen a recent stat that there's almost $14 billion spent by food, beverage, restaurant industry in 2016 in the U.S. alone. So, I mean, let's talk about uneven playing fields. Um, Right. I think, yeah, parents, of course, have a role to play. I would never dispute that. But I just think that the issue is parents can't be the only line of defense. We have a responsibility as a society to support the well-being of children. And I think that restricting marketing can be one of those ways. Right. And you give examples of some countries that have made inroads, even some communities within the United States and in Canada who have mm-hmm. who have put their foot down and said, you know what, we're not going to have marketing to kids because it's unethical. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the most significant examples certainly here in Canada is the province of Quebec has had restrictions on marketing to children since 1980. And we can actually look at that and say, these restrictions work. Kids Mm -hmm. eat, have a higher fruit and vegetable consumption in Quebec, and there are lower rates of uh, obesity and diet-related illness. Exactly. So it actually, it's pretty clear it works. Canada is actually in the process of creating some legislation. There's a summer recess in our House of Commons, and uh, just before there was supposed to be this bill passed, it's called the Child Health Protection Bill, and it is going to restrict marketing to kids under the age of 13 in all media. So we'll see. You know, the, the proof is in the pudding, as they say, and the regulations will be decided after the bill is passed. Hopefully it will be passed in the fall. Well, Um, congratulations on living in a country that puts children's health first. Wouldn't it be nice if we could all do that? Well, I have my fingers and toes and all other things crossed. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I feel like I need to tell a few more of these strategies because I, I kind of started with the older ones. But the thing that is really incredible is the way the they mutate and the way marketers have responded to the changes in the media landscape. Okay, one second, because I just have to, because we're halfway, I just have to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Andrea Curtis. She is an award-winning writer and editor and author of a book that we are talking about right now titled Eat This, How Fast Food Marketing Gets You to Buy Junk and How to Fight Back. Okay, let's continue. 
<laughs> There's so many strategies, and people who want to learn more can check out the book. But I think the thing that everybody who looks at this issue is talking about now is the digital marketing to kids. Yeah. The thing, even if we're really engaged parents, it's very hard to know what our kids are doing. And if they have cell phones, it's even harder. And mobile marketing to kids by fast food and beverage, sugary drink companies is intense. Right. So all the fast food chains have ordering apps and they offer coupons, special prizes for subscribers, little games you can play. And of course, they track your location. And then you can get stickers and emojis from your favorite fast food restaurant and spread the gospel of the brand on your own. Snapchat, they have uh, filters that you, if you go into a particular fast food place, they you can take a selfie and then put the crown on your head and make it look like you're eating the french fries from that restaurant and then send it to your friends and you basically become the advertiser yourself. Mm-hmm. So that's the mobile landscape. The web-based there are games, free games, lots of the, the um, YouTube influencers are using products on their YouTube channels. It's when we talk about the level playing field, like this is, we don't even know, I think, as parents, what kids are being sold. Right. And one of the things that that teacher who I mentioned earlier said to me was kids thought they were they were given an assignment at the beginning after they read the book to to go home and that weekend they had to come up with 25 examples of marketing messages and they kind of groaned oh how am i going <laughs> to do that and all of them could do it within 5 minutes yeah so yeah i'm sure that one of the strategies that you have in the book and one that I saw when my kids were young, too, was the infiltration of our public school system by marketers. You mentioned it briefly early on when you spoke about looking at what was happening in the school cafeteria. But it wasn't until my daughter went to college that I saw my first example of a textbook where the mathematical equations were being taught with M&Ms. Yeah, I <laughs> think. I haven't seen that, but it doesn't surprise me a bit. I mean, schools are a great place to sell to kids. It's a captive audience, and so many of our schools are cash-strapped. And so if a company offers curriculum that Mm -hmm. appears, you know, is close enough to the teacher's needs, they might take it, even if they know that it's essentially a marketing tool. Exactly. Um, there are coupons given to lots of kids for pizza places, you know, if they read a certain number of books. Right. get a coupon. There's the box tops you bring in and get a small, a few cents for the school. And, you know, some schools have quite a intense process with that. And, of course, there are lots of other fundraisers. McTeacher's Night got a lot of press a few years ago where teachers would go into McDonald's and a small percentage of the profits from that night would be would go to the school and the teacher would work the grill. You know, um, I, I actually have a story about that. 
there was one of the schools in my local community where one of the teachers complained about this because she recognized that this really wasn't an ethical thing to be doing when we're teaching eating a certain way, but we're modeling something else, then we're teaching something else. And she was not the the reaction to her from the principal was not positive. So there's a lot of peer pressure within the schools to go along with this because the schools need so much money. Absolutely. It's very hard to push against that. And But I think you hit the nail on the head. It's the crux of this is that if you know, part of our curriculum is to talk about uh, nutrition and, and how to eat it healthily and how to live healthily. And then we we have these mixed messages with McTeacher's Night or whatever other fundraising initiatives that are associated with fast food marketing. It, it's It's really a very confusing story to kids. Right. Yeah, and and it goes back to that justice piece. Like, how is this fair or how is this making sense if you're telling me one thing, but we're practicing something else? I I would think that for children's logical minds, they would think that that was wrong. Absolutely. Well, you have a resource list as well as strategies. You know, it's not like, oh, these are all of these negative things that are going on with regard to marketing and our kids. But you've got some great strategies for how to push back, as well as organizations that provide alternatives. For example, the Center for Science and the Public Interest for years has provided alternative fundraising, you know, alternatives to the donuts and fast food, things like, you know, selling plants, selling seeds, having some sort of service that you're providing where the school gets money, but you're not trading children's health. That's right. Well, I I mean, my whole thinking around this and in in all my writing about food is that it's about a, a, a food environment that we need to challenge. And we need to do that not just by saying no to marketing, but by creating positive places and environments where we can see what an alternative might look like. I've been involved with a school garden for many, many years, and I really saw in that school garden how transformative it can be for a child's relationship to what they eat. The kids, you know, would never look at kale are begging the teachers to, to let them have more kale. When we offer alternatives and really start to to build an, a different kind of food environment, that's when we can see real change. And it's partly it's about offering healthy options. Like there, there's a, a bit of a, a move in Canada or in Toronto at least to have salad bars in schools. And they're, they're seeing some really great uptake on that. When it's sold to the kids in a really smart way, school gardens, of course, can do that as well. And and I think that talking to kids about the media that they see is another part of altering that food environment. Yeah. Well, I want to recommend not only the book, but also you've got a link to curriculum. So for parents and teachers and anyone who is working with kids, maybe through a 4-H program or an after-school site, a daycare setting, 
I know that you mentioned that the book was designed for students, maybe, you know, nine to 12. But I think that it's also perfect for teachers of children of all ages, just to start planting seeds about how they as teachers have been manipulated in the classroom to do things that aren't in the best interest of their kids. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I love to see teachers talking about this with kids. I actually, when I looked around at the media literacy resources, there weren't very many about food. And I think that this is an incredible opportunity for teachers to really explore what media literacy is and what creating media is with kids because they know way more about this than we do. You know, they are the ones getting bombarded even more than adults, I think, with these messages. And given an opportunity, kids really can break it down and understand it. Right. And as much as children's lives are being dominated by digital media, and as you mentioned, the YouTube, I think that one of the important points you make in this book about media literacy is it's not just about taking media in, it's also having the power to create media. And I don't think that in any other time in history, have we been better able to create our own media. Absolutely. Um, This teacher that I mentioned earlier had the kids create their own marketing campaign for fruits and vegetables. And she she actually offered the fruits and vegetables to them in brown paper bags, and they had to choose them. And they were kind of unusual for for these kids. There was a papaya and an enoki mushroom and, you know, purple potatoes. And they had to create a campaign. And they just did incredible stuff and, and really embraced turning this on its head, using the strategies they'd learned right. to promote healthy food. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the situations that parents get in is we know what's best for our kids, or we'd like to think we do. And when we want to make a change, like if we want to say, you know, you're not going to be engaged with this particular video game, or we're not going to have this particular item in the home. There's also a concern that their kids will be labeled as being different. And because kids as a mass have been so bought up and swept up by this marketing, we need to create communities, I think, for children to have an alternative and to be able to turn this on their head and not be seen as outcasts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have thought quite a lot in the last little while that we're actually going to be in 10, 15, maybe 20 years, we're going to be talking about fast food and sugary drinks in the same way we now talk about cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Um, It may be too late for my own kids in that regard, but I don't think you're going to be an outcast in 20 years talking about this. It's just the evidence is mounting, the crisis is clear, and I think that that people can't help but become aware that that this this food environment is is harming us. Absolutely. We are going to have to close on that note. 
Unfortunately, our time is up, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at Kopian Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Andrea Curtis. Her website is www.andreacurtiskids.ca. We'll provide a link to that, a link to her book that we've been talking about. It is essentially a toolkit to fight fast food marketing to kids titled Eat This, How Fast Food Marketing Gets You to Buy Junk and How to Fight Back. Ms. Curtis, thank you so much for this book, your work, and for being my guest. Thank you for having me. 